0: Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Good to see everyone on this uh, wonderful rainy day here in (laughs) South Florida. Okay, we have the privilege of studying Parshas Emor together. Emor is on page 672 in the Artscroll Stone Chumash. And as always, we'll begin with our overview of the Parsha, and then we'll come back and look at some of the uh, Psukim, some of the specific Psukim in depth. Emor picks up where last week's Parsha left off. We'll see in a moment the Ibn Ezra... Sees a linkage between last week's mandate Of Kedoshim Tiyu To be holy, to be a sacred people And then the specific From the general mandate Of holiness for the people To the specific charge To the kohanim in particular The koanim are to be the leaders Who are to be the role models of the Jewish people And therefore the distinction They carry, their prohibition To contaminate themselves The obligation that we have, which we're going to examine A little bit more in depth, to honor and to give deference or deferential treatment to the Kohen and the uh, partial thing goes on and tells us the even greater distinction of the Kohen Gadol Kohanim are limited in whom they can marry and whom they can become contaminated to and the Kohen Gadol is even more limited because it is an is even higher level of distinction Torah then tells us about the Mumim that if a Kohen has a uh, blemish then he is ineligible to serve in the base of Megdash. the same would be true a kohen with a blemish which is distracting would uh, be ineligible to duchin today, the actual halachic or contemporary application of this. What if a kohen breaks his arm? What if a kohen is missing a limb? What if a kohen has a deformation? Deform- are they allowed to continue to duchin? That's uh, for another time. But at least this is the uh, Torah's uh, description of mumim disqualifying a kohen. The uh, Torah then goes on, page 676. Tells us the obligation of guarding truma, making sure that consecrated food does not become contaminated. Consecrated food is holy; it's designated to the kohen, to a levi. It's ineligible to be eaten by those who are of different status. One is uh, obligated to make sure to protect it from becoming uh, contaminated, blemished animals, um, and then we have the obligation of. Protecting from the desecration of Hashem's name and the inverse; instead, making sure that we are consumed by lives of Kiddush Hashem. Bottom of page six eighty. One should not lo Don't make a Hashem. What does the word chalal mean? It means a vacuum. It means an absence. It means a, a hole. Don't create a vacuum, an absence, an abscess in which God is missing in this world. Lo Hashem You'll notice it says, Lo sechalelu Hashem We talk about Kiddush Hashem and Chilol Hashem. This was the topic of our Shabbat Shuvah Drusha this past year. Kiddush Hashem, which we spoke about obviously much more in-depth and at length. But it doesn't describe being Mechalel God or mekadesh God. It talks about being Mechalel or mekadesh Shem. God's name. Because God's name is God's manifestation in this world. God is immutable. God cannot be compromised by our behavior or by our actions. But what can be impacted by us is God's reputation, God's shame. A Hashem means you've damaged God's reputation. A kiddush Hashem means you have improved, you have helped, you've promoted God's reputation our very mission in this world is to positively impact God's reputation. Not because God chas v'sholem is an egomaniac who cares about his reputation. But it means that the effort to perfect the world, the world is perfected by an awareness, by a mindfulness, by a cognizance of God. The more we promote God's name, the more aware the world is of God, the more they strive for godliness, the closer the world is towards perfection. And the more that we neglect that mission and God forbid do the opposite which sets back the mission and people say that's God that's the way people who, who, be, who claim to believe in that God that's the way they behave I have no interest in that God that God has nothing to teach me I have no allegiance and no loyalty towards that God so we've set the mission back so you'll see the Torah always phrases it not as impacting God himself God is immutable but rather Chilol Hashem and Kiddush Hashem—it's God's name; it's God's reputation. This is the this is the mission of a Jew. We say in Kiddusha, "Nikadeisha Hashemcha ba'olam." Every time we answer Kiddushah, we are making an affirmation. We're making a pledge, like the angels. We want to, Hashemcha ba'olam." God, at some point during my day today, I'm I'm committed to make a chilasha. I won't go to sleep tonight without having made a Kiddush Hashem. That's my mission, that's my mandate. By the way I behave, by the way I carry myself, by the way I interact with others, by the kindness and generosity I show. Right? Uh, we're seeing a massive Kiddush Hashem. Baruch Hashem, Israel is so represented disproportionately in Nepal, in its uh, field hospital, in its volunteers, in its effort, in its impact... And every news story, every media outlet that picks up how Israel is disproportionately represented in caring for a country that has nothing to do with it. In which, yes, it had some citizens touring, but it doesn't have citizens living. And nevertheless, Israel is so represented. Even the, uh, the New York Times had an article a few days ago that talked about the money that's going to Nepal. Disproportionate, I think 15% of it was Jewish money. I forgot what the number was. Right, 0.2 percent of the world population is Jewish, but 15 percent of the money going to help a ravaged country that really has nothing to do with Jews is coming from, from Jews. This is a kiddush Hashem, the Hashem Chabba Now you'll notice in the pasuk again, this is just the overview. I want to get moving here, but in the pasuk it seems to give two options. Hashem kachi don't make a chil Hashem, but rather instead v'nikdashri v'soch b'nei Yisrael, make a kiddush Hashem. Well, what about the third option? Can't I behave in a way that's neither a Chilol or a Kiddush Hashem? I just am. I'm just living. I go to the gym. I go to work. I go to the supermarket. I go to shul. I just, I'm living. It's neither a Chilol nor a Kiddush Hashem. I forgot where I once saw it, but I saw someone said that the answer is no. There's not three options. Maybe it was Rabbeinu B'chaia. There's two options every behavior, every decision, every moment of your life is either going to set back the mission or advance the mission. There is no neutral. There is no parroth. There is no opportunity to say, I'm just living. I don't, you know, celebrities, athletes say, I'm not a role model. Charles Barkley was famous for saying, I'm a good ball player. I never claimed to be a role model. Nobody should judge my actions. I'm not responsible for how I behave. I'm not a role model. Well, every Jew does not have the luxury of saying, I'm not a role model. What the Torah means to tell us is you're born into a community of people who are designated as role models. Our behavior matters. We're going to either advance the mission or set back the mission. And there is no neutral. There is no power. It's either or it's Now you'll notice, where does Kiddush Hashem and the Pasek take place? Where? We're used to thinking... Right? Those school trips when we were kids. Don't stick your head out the bus school, the window of the bus. Don't misbehave in the museum. Right? Every time a school went on a class trip, you had a big schmooze before you left. Don't make a Chilol Hashem, make a Kiddush Hashem. We're used to thinking that where are Chilol Hashem and Kiddush Hashem? In what venue <clears throat> do they matter most? Among the nations of the world, when you interact with non-Jews. But what does the Pasuk say? The Nikdashdi where The Soch Yisrael. You know, people think... Ah, it's how I act out in the world that matters. But in shul I can be rude and disgusting and discourteous. In shul I can kick someone out of my seat and claim it's my makum kavua. I can elbow them to get my way into the Kiddush, to get another Frank in a blank. In shul I'm allowed, among Jews, ah, it's family, I'm allowed to do what I want. That's the opposite. Where the Pasuk talks about chilul and Kiddush Hashem, it's specifically among Jews. The <speaking in Hebrew> It begins at home. can't alienate the family it starts with fellow Jews if they become alienated who do we have less so the mission begins by inspiring the other members of the mission towards the mission so I could go on for hours as I did on Shabbat Shuvah but uh, this is the makor of this concept of Chil Hashem and the overarching mandate which really in many ways inspires and informs every single mitzvah in the Torah is that we as a people are designated to transform the world and we transform that world through the Nikta Ashti So I started the Shabbat Shuvah by talking about most people think about Kiddush Hashem as dying Al Kiddush Hashem. Willing to give a life Al Kiddush Hashem. There's a whole sugya. Do you make a bracha when you're dying Al Kiddush Hashem? Do you make a bracha? person knows they're about to be slaughtered, they're about to be murdered, they're about to be killed for being a Jew. In the Holocaust, or God forbid in Paris... God forbid in Israel so do you make a bracha before you die Al-Kiddush Hashem we normally think about it as dying Al-Kiddush Hashem but the truth is dying Al-Kiddush Hashem to a certain degree is easier than living Al-Kiddush Hashem dying is rising to that moment rising to that one time of course it's not easy it's the ultimate sacrifice but it's a one time adrenaline burst to rise to the occasion to give one's life Al-Kiddush Hashem but in the mundane, every week when you come to shul, every day at work, at the gym, at the supermarket, to live al Kiddush Hashem, that's a whole other level. Alright, like I said, I could go on, but I'm not going to. The parsha ends, Emor, famously, it is uh, Emor and Re'eh, of the parashists in the Torah, that tell us about the Moadim, the Moados. Tell us about the Jewish holidays, and the Jewish holiday cycle. Once described, um, ...based on agriculture and once described based on themes. So here we have the introduction to the yantifs. elahem Moedai. Moed comes from the word Viud. vad. It means a rendezvous point. It means an appointed time. A Moed is an appointed time. And uh, we're supposed to accomplish different things. Pesach, we have the origin of the Omer, which we're in the midst of observing... Uh, that culminates in Shavuos Rosh Hashanah, Sukesh and so on it's interesting here we have the Usvartal Nachem Min Maharasa again there's hours and hours you can talk about Svir um, Saomer culminating in Shavuos I'll just tell you because I happen to have just seen it recently I don't think it's widely observed but the Rav Sternbach in his chuvas has the following interesting insight, he says we know that the Pasuk says here when do we begin counting Sphirah on Macharasa Shabbos after the first day of Pesach? One of the famous debates between the Tzutukim and the Prushim, The Sadducees took Shabbos literally and began to count on Saturday night. We take Shabbos here metaphorically as a reference to Pesach. We begin to count after the first day of Pesach. Sheva Shabbosos to Mimos And what do we count? Seven to Mimos. Seven complete and whole weeks. And we know based on this, it's a little bit debate in uh, in halacha, But the normative practice is to wait to Davan Marav on the first night of Shavuos because you require Tamimos seven complete weeks. If you were to bring Shavuos in early, Yontif in early, then you would you would violate, you would infringe on the Tamimos. You wouldn't allow the end of the seventh week. For the seventh week to be complete, it needs to go until nightfall of the last day of the seventh week. If you were to bring Shavuos in early, you would somehow take away from the notion of Tamimos. There there is debate in halacha. Is this just a custom, this notion of Timimus, to wait to daven Marav on Shavuos night until Tzais. Is it just uh, is it a halacha? Is it a custom? I know in Tinec certain rabbi has uh, a early because uh, he doesn't believe that this is binding. So Rav Shrembach has the following interesting halacha. I happen to have seen it this week. He says, normally when it comes to Yontif, women make a bracha of She'achiyonu when lighting candles. Because they're accepting yantif with candle lighting. The Shekheyanu is how the Shekheyanu applies to yantif. I haven't observed this yantif in a year. I make a Shekheyanu in gratitude to be able to be in a position to observe yantif. Men make Shekheyanu a kiddush. Women do add candle lighting. That in itself is a controversial halachic practice. Some suggest that women should not say Shekheyanu a candle lighting. They too should do it during kiddush uh, as well. And those who have the custom to say Sheik you know, are candlelighting, women have to be careful not to answer amen to their husband Sheik you know, in Kiddush because if they do, it's a hefzik. They've already heard she'achianu. If they answer amein, it's a hefsek. It is a break between the kiddush which they need and the drinking of kiddush. So if a woman makes she'achianu at candle lighting, she should not answer Amen to her husband's kiddush to her husband's she'achianu during kiddush. Or alternatively, she shouldn't say she'achianu during candle and wait to be yotze with her husband at kiddush. That in itself is a question. But, no, that's in general on yantiv. Comes along with Sternbach and he says. Normally with Yantif, just like with Shabbos, you can have Tosef Yantif. You can bring in Shabbos early, right? Those in the summer months who are making early Shabbos as a plog. So you're bringing Shabbos in early, Tosef Shabbos. And just like there's Tosef Shabbos, Rambam doesn't hold of it, but most Rishonim do, so too there can be Tosef Yantif. You could add on to Yantif. Says so Rav Shrembach, that's true with Pesach. And that's true with Sukkos. But it's not true with... Sukkos also, you have to wait... Told says to make kiddush in the sukkah, but you could have tosefis Yantif But it's not tosefis Rosh Hashanah. But it's not true tosefis. My Makipuram is the makor for tosefis uh, for the notion of tosefis. But says Rav it's not true for shavuos because you require to me most, you cannot accept Yom of Shavuos early. You can only accept it in its time because you need to achieve the concept of Tamimos. And if that's true, says Rav Sturmbach, women should not say Shachyanu at candlelighting, even if on all the other Yom Tovim they have the custom of saying Shachyanu at candlelighting. Nevertheless, on Shavuos, since the Shachyanu is going on Shavuos, which can't uh, be marked until Tamimos is achieved... They should not say she'achiyano during candlelighting. I saw it for the first time. I don't think it's normative practice. I don't know what do women here do. You grew up in your mother's home. They were undoubtedly righteous women who learned from their mothers and learned from their mothers. And I think if your minog is to say she'achiyano on shavuos, then continue to say the she'achiyano on an shavuos. And you don't answer amen, right? That that is clear that you shouldn't answer amen if you say she'achiyano at candlelighting. That you shouldn't answer amen. Okay. Anyway. So you have all the Moadim, and then the Parsha ends, the menorah, and the She'alacha, the uh, and then we have this uh, fascinating story of the Mikalel, the individual who blasphemes and curses God. Who is this individual? What motivated their cursing God? Why is the punishment for them the one it is? I think it's a topic we've spoken about in the past. Let's go back to the very beginning of the Parsha, Emor. These are the Pesukim I want to study. So. 672. Page 672. Moshe. Aaron aleihem lo yitama be'amav. God summons Moshe and He tells Moshe, He instructs Moshe to communicate to the koanim and to tell them that no soul should be contaminated by a dead person. lo be'amav should not contaminate himself to a dead person among his people. Now the obvious first question is the redundancy in the pasuk. Emor vi'amarta Speak to the kohanim and say to them emor va'amarta. It's redundant. Emor if you're speaking to them you're speaking to them. Why do you have to say speak to them and tell them? It's redundant. It's utterly unnecessary. So, who is bothered by this? Rashi says, "Rashi, Via al Haktan." According to the Gemara in Yevamos, this is a obligation. Amor applies to the Gedolim, and the to the Kitanim. Why is it repeated? To instruct the adults to be careful to properly educate and teach the children. That means to say that an adult is not allowed to bring a child kohen into a cemetery. You might think that the child is not gil mitzvot, the child is not yet at the age that they're obligated, that they're responsible, that they're accountable. So therefore you can give non-kosher to the child to eat. You could take a kohen child into a hospital. You could allow a child to... You could ask a child to turn your light on or off for you on Shabbos. Says the Pasuk, (laughs) That no, the adults need to be scrupulous and vigilant when it comes to children as well. Does that mean that you can't, that you have to uh, take it away from a child? So we'll see in a moment in the Ramban. So that's what Rashi says. And many extrapolate from here to Chinuch in general, the notion of adults being role models for children. Lahazir gedolam alakatana. meaning if you want to see the way that children are going to behave, look at the gedolam, look at the adults. It's the model and the precedent that's set by the adults, which will have the greatest contribution and influence on molding and shaping the children. I saw an interesting say for this morning says, Why emor va'amarta alayhem? Begins in the singular and then it goes to the plural. Because when you want to give musr, if you want to give feedback to a child or to anybody the most uh, impactful way to do it is to couch it in terms not specific to the individual, but to couch it in broader terms. If you have to tell someone something, say, you know, people behave this way, people shouldn't really do this. Instead of saying, you, 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 you give the feedback as if you're speaking to people in the plural, and the person will be more, um, more ready to accept it says the Ibn Ezra and more elak kohanim Ibn Ezra Pazigalov. Hizir Bikhlalom Lios Kedoshim. After last week's Pasha, where God tells the Jewish people, all the people, to be holy. Hizir Shem Midvar So we went from the general umbrella of everybody Kedoshim to you. We all need to be holy to Aaron and the Kohanim specifically. Bavur Because they are ze the, ide serve they mishar sa hasham like shemut leumi mishares is to serve they serve Hashem. bi tahen li us parish amor la koanim kola parshan is karas ki atora bi okay vi amata alehem tamemetzos shem chayavim ushom lemvadam so amor la is last week Every, the Kedoshim to you of everybody. The Amar Alayam says the Ibn Ezra is the mitzvah specific to the Kohen. Make sure the Kohenim understand them, their reasons, and are prepared to observe them. The Ramban does not like this. Says the Ramban, This is, the Ramban elaborates on Rashi, you're not allowed to encourage You're not allowed to um, support a katan doing an Avera. You see this when it comes to food, um, giving a child to eat non-kosher food, or to become contaminated. You see from here, that even though katanim are not yet the age of mitzvos, Nevertheless, adults are prohibited from enabling children to violate mitzvahs. It says that if the child has engaged themselves in something which is forbidden, then adults are not obligated to take it away. A child is playing with a mukta toy, again, if at their age of you want to be machanech them, it's one thing. Two year olds playing with a mukta toy, two year olds going to turn off the light, a two year olds uh, grab some food, milchliks, uh, after they ate fleshiks, you're not obligated to stop them. You're not allowed to encourage, you're not allowed to enable. But we're not obligated to stop them. And that comes from our Parsha and others. Ibn <laughs> Ezra, the Ibn Ezra had said, "Emor refers to last week's parsha. The Amarta is the thing specific to the Cohen." Says the Ramban, without mixing words, "Ainu he's wrong." The Aldaiti be Tam Emor Kemo Daber, imri Azin Hashem, Dvari V'chein Imrei Emes, V'chein Yisshama koa Rei Hashem, Uksiv boa Aparo V'Dibarte Ilav, V'Dibarte La Kama V'Amarta V'Dibar Moshe Alarim V'Yalal Zavi Alitamar, K'wasimim V'Yomer, Chaim Be Mekom Mos Daberu bnei Yisrovi amarta alaihem, b'hu ne'mar asher lahazir lahem ma'od. Says the Ramban, why is the Ibn Ezra bent out of shape? It says, We have it all over the Torah. Every time it says, "Daberu bnei via Marta alaihem," there's a redundancy. Daber v'amarta. So why are you bent out of shape here? Because Emor Marta. So the Ramban rejects the Ibn Ezra and says instead, why the redundancy? For emphasis. Because the Torah God seeks to communicate To be very vigilant The severity of the issue Or because people are not careful with it So they need to be warned and cautioned even more And so on The Ramban brings all these other psukim to show That it's not as unusual as the Ibn Ezra implies it is Okay Notice the pasuk says bine aharon. Rashi notes Aaron velo bnos Aaron, and that's why girl female kohanim are not musar are not uh, prohibited from having contact with contamination. A bas kohen or an ashes kohen, the daughter of a kohen or the wife of a kohen, is allowed to go to a funeral. It's allowed to go to the cemetery. It's allowed to go to a hospital with a morgue. It only applies, this Azhara only applies to um, adult koanim, not to, I'm sorry, to male koanim, not to female koanim. Even male koanim, we talked about you have to be, your musar on children. There's a discussion in halacha. Can a pregnant woman go into a hospital that has a corpse? There's actually a discussion, can she go into deliver there? But obviously her need to deliver in a safe environment, pikuach nefesh, supersedes. But can a pregnant woman because there's a chance she might be pregnant with a boy, can she go into a cemetery? Can she go into a funeral? So an Aisha's Kohen, a woman married to a Kohen, who might be carrying a male Kohen, can she go to a funeral? Can she go to the cemetery? Can she visit a friend in the hospital, if there's a morgue in the hospital? So there's a big discussion in Halacha. And then there's another discussion in Halacha today, what if she has a sonogram and she knows what she's having? And let's say the sonogram tells her that it's a girl. Is that enough to allow her? Do we accept sonograms in halacha? Is that enough to allow her to go? And more of Akdolam Marta, she is not allowed to take her little unborn. When does a, Another question is, from when is a boy, Musar, not to go in a cemetery? Does he have to be born? Is an unborn male already cautioned not to become contaminated? And if you assume yes, so um, what if a woman has a sonogram and it says, can you rely on the sonogram? my son Shai we were told by an early sonogram was a girl and it wasn't only until uh, it wasn't only until about six weeks later that uh, another sonogram happened to be done in which they said it was a different person they asked Jehovah who was at the major checkup they said do you want to know what you're having she said I already know what I'm having my seventh girl no she didn't say she said I already know what I'm having so don't bother and then as it was going she said you know what are you looking already? Yeah. So the woman said, well, it's still a boy. She said, still a boy? Sorry? Anyway, I wasn't home. I was on a trip for a conference and it called me in. I almost passed that. I actually made her take a picture of the sonogram screen and text it to me. But anyway, so if a person is a sonogram, oh, uh, Isha's is going as a sonogram saying it's a girl, is that enough to allow her to go? Do you follow sonograms in Allah? All this is discussed in contemporary postkim fascinating, I think fascinating chuvas Next passage, A Kohen is allowed to a regular, non-Kohen Gadol, a regular Kohen hijod, is allowed to become contaminated, to his family, love to whom he is related, to whom he is close, namely the seven immediate relatives for whom someone mourns. A mother, father, a daughter, a son, daughter, a brother, and a wife. Where does it say wife? Where does it say wife? The sheiro, sheiro means wife. So, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, brother, and what about a sister? So the Pasach differentiates. It depends. If she's unmarried, she's a bachelorette, then she remains your sister to the point of you're allowed to contaminate to her. If she marries, then she's still your biological sister, but it means she's entered the reshus of her husband. Not in a negative sense. Let's say, you know, this is true for Kohen. The daughter of a Kohen who marries is no longer allowed to eat truma. She marries a Yisrael. Right? Kozman, the whole time she's growing up in her father's home the Kohen, she could eat his truma. That's the food they have at the dinner table. Once she marries, she's unable to eat truma. What if she divorces or the husband dies? She returns to her father's home. It depends whether she had a child or not. If she had a child, she remains connected to the husband. She can't go back to truma. If she didn't, then she can. So for Tuma, so you see, there's the notion of her entering the rashis of her husband, rather than leaving the rashis of her of her father. So that's what the pasuk here differentiates whether a Kohen can become contaminated to his sister would depend on whether she is married or not. Lo yitama baal be'amav lahechalo. Says the next pasuk, Dawad a husband among his people cannot contaminate himself to one who desecrates him. Meaning, look at Rashi. Let's say a Cohen married someone he shouldn't have married. A Kohen marries a convert. A Cohen marries a divorcee. Since she dies, can he go to her funeral? Says the Torah, no. He married her inappropriately. The marriage is chal. The marriage is binding, but it's a inappropriate marriage, and therefore his Cohen status supersedes the ability to attend his. Uh, wife who shouldn't be his wife's funeral. Why says the Svarno? Hatam yitama a What's the reason altogether that a kohen can't contaminate? Why can't a kohen go to funerals? Why can't a kohen show honor to others? Why is a kohen altogether warned to avoid tumah? Can't go to the cemetery and can't go to funerals other than immediate family. So says Ravavad Kim The Kohen is the leader. He's designated. He is responsible to be a role model, to be a teacher. The Navi tells us that the lips of the Kohen protect God's wisdom and you should seek Torah from His mouth. The Kohen is not just, doesn't just do the service, he's not just your employee. But the Kohen is a role model, he's a teacher, he's a leader. And this Kohen has to maintain his dignified, elevated status. Now, if a Kohen becomes contaminated, he can't re-enter the base of Miktosh until so he goes through a process of purification. So is it really right that the coin should forfeit his role, his position, in order to, and, and be ineligible to go back to his job because to go to stom anybody's funeral? No. We paskin, there's a debate in Sanhedrin, is a funeral or has paid them to show honor to the deceased or to the living? Are we seeking to show honor to those who are gone or to their survivors who remain? the Gemara says the is to show to those who are deceased so when it comes to stam people the Kohen's job supersedes his ability to attend the funeral of others he could pay a shiva call he could support the family in other ways but his ability to serve in his designated role of distinction is more important transcends uh, the importance of going to a funeral that's true for everyone else's funeral except for his family, kvodamu kvodo, Their honor is his honor. So for him to not attend the funeral of his own loved ones would be to compromise his own honor. And that does not take precedence over the... uh, His job does not take precedence over his own honor. And that's why the exception is made to be able to attend the funerals of his own family. So the Sforino gives a, a reason. Okay. Um. There's a lot more I want to share with you here, but I want to get to this other topic. Uh, look at the kliyakar, kliyakar on pasuk days. We said the exception: the kohen is allowed to contaminate himself to his relatives. When it says his family, that is his wife, the only non-blood relative. The kasher ma'uzah Loshen Zacher, Hakrovay love me le lelameimar. If Sheiro is his wife, it should say Sheiro Hakrovay love. Who is close to him? Why Hakarov in the masculine? It should say it in the feminine. V'lama kar liyisto and why is his wife, everyone else has a name, Imo, everyone else has a name. His wife doesn't get a name. Say Yishto, why do you call her She'iro? And chronologically, your father and mother come into your life before your wife. So why does it say his wife, She'iro, before his mother and father? These are the three questions of the Kliyakar. And says the Kliyakar, perhaps one could explain based on the Gemarni of Omar le Rabbi Lelio le Eliyahu, b'me ishta ozarto la adam. Rabbi is having a conversation with Elio and he says, "In what way is a woman helpful to her husband?" Omar le adam mevichitin chitin koseis pishdan pishdan lovesh lo Mi miira einav mamidaso araglav. The man brings in the raw materials, but who turns the wool into a garment for him to wear? Who turns the flour into bread for him to eat? Who takes the homer? Who takes the raw materials and gives them a tsura? I'm applying the Klayaka doesn't use these words. These are the the words of the Marao. Marau for example talks about the man, the masculine is the homer. Man is the material. But the female provides the tsura. She gives form. Right? And if you think about the Venus and Mars, men versus women, right? Men men are kind of uh, Again, these are overgeneralizations, but for the most part true. Men, um, women give men a, a, um, a framework, guide them. They take what would be everywhere and, uh, and uh, disorganized, and they give uh, organization. So men provide the chomer, the material, women provide the tzura. Men bring in the materials, and a woman turns the flour into bread, or turns the wool into clothing. So therefore, where would the man be without his wife? He'd have a pile of flour and a pile of wood. But he'd be cold and hungry. Without his wife, he'd be cold and hungry. Sheiro means she sustains him. She provides for him. And what happens? When you eat food, it's literally absorbed by you. It becomes one with you. The, the nourishment that you receive becomes absorbed by you, literally becomes part of you, and it energizes you, it sustains you, it gives you life. So that is a metaphor. Okay? Your wife is you. She prepares the things that give you life Without her you die. She is your life. She is you. you are one and the same. We have this concept in Halacha. Even though physically man and woman are physically separate, other than the first man, Adam Arishan and Chava, that they were made together combined, but now men and women are fashioned separately. Because she may not be your blood relative. She may not be connected to you by blood, but she's more than blood. She gives you your blood. Your brother, your sister, your mother and father, once you're an adult, you're on your own. Good luck. But your wife is the one who sustains you, who nourishes you, who gives you life, you'd be lost to beauty to, romantic claykar. right? Oh, Mother's Day, Well, it's not mother's, day. It should be wife's day. But anyway. It's uh, your wife is the one who gives you life, who sustains you and nourishes you. So, you might say, well, maybe I should uh, become tameh for my boss at work. He's the one who signs my paycheck. Maybe I should the person who gives me chesed. No, I can't. The Kliyakar here goes on and on, but this is the basis of his explanation of the primary role of a wife, even above blood relatives, of giving life, of giving surah to the Chomer, of sustaining and nourishing. And therefore, Ishto Kigufo, your relative is a blood relative. Your wife is even more than that. Your wife is you. Ishto Kigufo. She's even a closer relative than a blood relative, because Ishto Kigufo, she is you, a very beautiful, sappy and romantic Kliyaka. Okay. Um, let's go Viter. Next puzzle. Hey. This should sound familiar. last week's Parsha. You're not allowed to make a bald spot on one's head, not allowed to shave their beard, and not allowed to cut into their skin. We just saw this. Why are the Kohenim being warned in the very thing that we're all warned against? We're not allowed to make a bald spot on our head, can't take a razor, a man can't take a razor to his beard, and we're not allowed to cut our skin. Torah gives this warning to all the Jewish people. In that context, by the way, Torah gives this warning to all the Jewish people. It says... In this context, <laughs> don't cut your skin and so on. What's the connection between the two? So the Mepharshim there explained, I think we've studied it before, that to cut one's skin in grief is excessive. We are saddened by death because we've lost the connection, the immediate connection with the deceased. But we believe that there's an afterlife. We believe there's an immortality of the soul. We believe they've gone to a better place and we believe that we will spend eternity with them. So to start cutting one's skin, start cutting oneself as a form of grieving is excessive. And it's not only excessive, it is to deny the notion of the immortality of the soul. It's to deny the notion of the afterlife. So we're not allowed to cut our skin and these other uh, forms also, the bald spot and the... um, Shaving had something to do with grieving, had something to do with idolatry, something to do with what the nations of the world used to do. So why are the Kohanim given the same warning that we've already seen? Why do they need to be specifically called out? So the Kliyakar addresses this pasake, and The Kliyakar says, you might think Why do you need to say it twice? Because you might think a An average Joe dies So that's when it's inappropriate To uh, make a, a mark on your body To mourn them because they didn't really make a mark on the world that they were an average person. Aval, Baoin, Uh Where's the Cleca? Where do you go? So I might have thought the average Israel, the average Joe, who doesn't make a mark on the world, you can't make a mark on your body to mourn his loss. But the Kohen who leaves a mark on the world who dies, you should make a mark on your body to show just how. Just how saddened you are. So Kamash Shmilon, the Torah tells me not only the Israel is warned not to, Kohenim are also not allowed to. Viyashminan. So why don't you just tell me the Kohen can't, and I'll know that the Israel can't. kohen moshe hu I might have thought a Kohen, who most certainly has earned a generous portion of the world to come, I shouldn't grieve excessively because he's in a good place. Avah. Ah, but Estam Joe Yisrol is probably going to hell, so then I should cut my skin to mourn. Love, no. So the Klayakar explains, I need to be warned twice for the Yisrael and for the Kohanim in order to uh in order to tell me uh, I might have thought otherwise, to tell me that both are warned not to grieve excessively. Posakvov. Kidoshimilok they should be holy to Hashem, not desecrate, don't make a khil Hashem. Why? Because they bring this food to Hashem, they must remain holy because they are the medium who delivers these korbanos to Hashem. Part of the distinction of the koanim is whom they can marry. They can't marry a zona, a zona is a prostitute. How that's defined is debate within an halacha. The Ramah basically says, any woman who slept with a man whom she's not married to has the halachic status of a zonah. There's a discussion exactly how you define zonah whom the coin is ineligible to. V'chalala lo yikachu, v'isha grusha me'isha lo yikachu a divorcee, ki lalokav. He is designated with this higher status. The, the, uh, he was a Cohen. Azulai, the last name of his family, came from being Kohanim. Isha Zona The acronym is Azulai. Pasuk Ches. Actually, go back. Look at the Sforno and Pasuk Vav. Sforno says let's say a Kohen says which I've had a Kohen say I'm willing to give up my Kohen status I don't need the first Aliyah I don't need the duchen. I want to marry that girl that divorcee I want to marry that convert I don't need it I'm willing to be Michael Zayn I'm willing to forfeit the honor due that's what, says, what the Pasuk says, and you can't. Your status is not only a reflection on you, you are, you are charged with being the highest status in the Jewish people, the role model, the extension of the Rebun Shalom. You can't be mocha on Hashem's kavod. You way you carry yourself is not only for your kavod, but it's for the honor of Hashem too, and you cannot forfeit that kavod. Oh, that's true too you're impacting your children not just yourself you have to sanctify him you meaning non-koanim have to treat the koin with greater sanctity why? he offers the food of your God he should remain holy to you in other words the koin is your medium to offer your karbonos you have to treat your role model, your leader with deference, with respect, with honor. How do you do that? Says the Ibn Ezra of the Kiddashto bimachshava uvedibur. The way you think about him and the way you speak to him. You have to treat him with greater with greater honor because he is the one who brings this, the food for you. He is the one who fulfills, he is the one who brings the Carbonos on your behalf. He is the delivery system for you to get close to Hashem. So you need to treat him with Greater deference. Me, to the children if this man, the Kohen, does marry somebody? It's... the marries somebody, shouldn't. His child becomes a halal. His child is no longer, has the has the benefits of the kahuna. Okay. The daughter of a Kohen, if she is promiscuous, if she's adulterous, she not only. In other words, the Kohen status is so great, says the Torah. If you come from a family of Kohen and you're the daughter, normally, if you are adulterous, there's one punishment. But if you're a Bas and you're adulterous, now nah, you've really defiled your whole family. And therefore, Ba'esh tisareif, it is the harsh punishment of... She receives Misa with Esh, with Saref. Okay. This mitzvah of Vikidashto, now go to your handout. We have a few minutes to go through this, to try to cram this all in. If you're listening online, hopefully the handout is there as well. But how is this mitzvah of the Toh fulfilled? This obligation we mentioned, that non-Kohanim also have to treat the Kohen with greater deference and with greater respect, how is it fulfilled? So first of all, is this obligation of non-Kohanim to treat Kohanim with respect biblical or rabbinic? The Mugan of Ram, source 3, rights. So, uh, the Pasuk, the notion of the Kidashto, you shall sanctify him, saying that you have to give the Kohen, when you're putting out the food, he gets the first portion, he gets the first aliyah, he gets, you have to talk to him in a respectful way. All this says the magen of Ram is Rabbinic, the fact that we connect it with the Pasuk, the Kidashto is is a Asmachta, we're just connecting Whereas the carbon the Sinel, and holds its mamish Doraisa. I'll quotes a debate Is it the Raisa Or is it the rabbonne? But we have to show the Kohen respect It's codified in Shochanar. Source 5 Shochanar Simon Reish Aleph In Archaim Writes If you have a Kohen who is also a scholar He goes first Shenema bekidash tov, l'vtoach or lelavarch rishon, he gets the first right. In the Mishnah Brura, there elaborates, bekriyas haTorah lelavarch rishon, l'vtoach rishon bekriyas haTorah, the Cohen gets the first d'lia, the most honored one because of the kiddush tov. Levarach rishon be'seuda bebirchas amotzi bebirchas amazum. If one person is going to say amotzi aloud for everyone, it should be the Cohen. If one person is going to lead the benching, it should be the Kohen. If you're going to give one person to say Kiddush for everyone, it should be the Kohen. This is how we honor the Kohen. We distinguish the Kohen in all of these opportunities. Interesting. The poskim say, not only within ritual and ceremony, but even in casual conversation. You're having a board meeting, and everyone wants to weigh in on something, the Kohen is at the board, has something to say, the coin on your board of directors gets to have the first chance to speak. the Magen as we saw, debated a The Kohen is allowed to pass. If he, doesn't, if he doesn't want to make the Kiddush or lead the benching, he's allowed to. Rak Torah Eni Yachol The only area where he's not allowed to forfeit to be Mochol is getting the first Aliyah. Getting the first Aliyah. Okay. Um Burah adds. Yes. Yes. No. Kohen who's compromised to status loses the entitlement to the honors. Yeah. The Mishnah Bura adds in Source 7 that if the Kohen does forgive being honored then you should say So if the kohen's forfeiting or if you're giving the benches to somebody else you need to get the permission of the Kohen. He's entitled to it. That's his right. And if you're going to give it to someone else, it's not enough to say B'rishus Kohen without having his R'shus. You have to actually ask his permission. The, what? Oh, you should ask the R'shus from all the Kohen in present. Yeah. Yeah. The Ramah adds in Source 8, So not only do we show respect to the Kohen by giving him deference, by giving him preferential treatment, you're serving the soup. The first bowl goes to the Kohen at the table. Not only in the way that you treat the Kohen, but you're also not allowed to benefit or use a Kohen. If the Kohen is not willing to forgive his honor, you're not allowed to tell the Kohen, do me a favor, you're standing already, can you go get me a drink? Do me a favor, take out the garbage. Do me a favor, I don't know how this works with an Asha's Kohen to a Kohen, but you're not allowed to be what's called You can't use a Kohen. Mishnah here elaborates <speaking in Hebrew> <speaking in Hebrew> says Practically speaking Unlike the forno we saw in our Parsha But practically speaking A Kohen can be mochel. <speaking in Hebrew> Some say no A Kohen cannot be mochil. You have to pay the Kohen The only time you can use the Kohen To do something for you Is if you are rewarding him You're paying him so, you shouldn't be mishtamish for Kohen. Don't use a Kohen and have a Kohen do anything, uh, do something for you. The Yabi Omer of Avadi here as a Chuvah. Again, about this concept can you have the Kohen take out the garbage and so on? Can you say Lamila Shalafum dinar actinish or Shai Kol Nimchal akvodil uh, so he passed in Zerub it's not Derech B'Zayon. The same way a Ta'am can serve the drinks, help out, clear the table, the Kohen can as well. is agreeing to participate and do that is the form of being, being Mocha. And that's what the uh, Aruch HaShulchan writes. When the Kofiza Din not the Kohen did so no, the Kohen did so no, so the Marech HaSholchan Paskins, if the coin starts cleaning the table, you don't have to stop him. That's not called Meshacham for The coin is allowed to be Mochal, and there is an implicit Mechila when he does so. Now the Magan of Ram asks in Source 12 the key question, why are we not careful with this today? We're careful to give the coin in the first Aliyah, and we offer the Kohen to lead the benching. But we're not so careful to give the first bowl of soup to the Kohen, at the board of directors meeting, we don't allow the Cohen to weigh in first, to vote first. We don't often give a Cohen to lead kiddish the table that Balabais does. Why are we not careful? Ask the Magen Avraham. Tzorach Yon lama inis arn achshav l'ha'kdim a Cohen l'chol anoch milay. Bi'esh lizar b'ze me'achreshed says it's not Nesmach; it's araisa. So this is a biblical law. So why are we not scrupulous in our treatment? To make sure the coin never gets us a drink or clears the table and that we always allow, we serve them first. Why are we not careful with this? The answer is the mogan of Ram, Efshar, De'ein anu Bi b'yichusei kahuna Because we are not so confident today that everyone who claims to be a coin is really a coin How do we know that their status is uh, in fact intact? Is in fact intact. We see in Sefer Ezra, In the time of Ezra already, with the return to Eretz Yisrael, that there was already the beginning of a loss of the status of kahuna. It was hard to preserve status. In ancient times, in ancient times, every Kohen used to have a Sefer Yuchsin. In ancient times, a Kohen had a book, a chart, that would authenticate his lineage. That would authenticate his lineage. But we don't have that today. You go up to an average Kohen, and then you ask how they know they're a Kohen, and their father told them they're a Kohen. And look at the cemetery, and on the grave there's the image of a Kohen. But you see that we are already suspicious. Where in Halacha do you see we're already suspicious? That we do not give something that belongs to the Kohen to the Kohen, even in Chutzlaerts. Certainly in Israel, you're not giving Truma to a Kohen. Even though we separate Truma to Miseros and Eretz Yisrael, we don't give it to a Kohen. Even in Chutzlaerts, where do you see a practice where something that really the coin's entitled to, we don't give it to him because we are suspicious? Chala. Says the Ramah, Source 15. Chala is the truma of bread. You separate a portion, you give it to the coin. People don't even realize that. That's how, because we are accustomed to destroying the chala. We burn what we separate the chala. But before we would burn it, really, it used to go to the Kohen. The Ramah says, we don't give it to the Kohen. Why don't we give it to the Kohen, says the Mishnah Bura? How do we know it's really a Kohen? And maybe, if it's true, he it comes from a line of Kohanim, maybe there was Chilil somewhere in there. Maybe one of the men married someone they shouldn't have married. Maybe there was uh, something that shouldn't have happened. And therefore, they're no good. So we don't give, you see, that in practical terms, we already are suspicious that we burn the challah rather than give it to a Kohen. So suggest the Magen of Ram, maybe it's that same suspicion which can justify or defend our leniency in not fully practicing the Kiddash the way that we should. So even if they truly, the father's a Kohen, maybe their grandfather married someone who was forbidden to a Kohen, and that will taint the lineage, liyolam and, and so on. Um, the bir Alacha here disagrees, I'm sorry, the Berhe He says, don't start questioning the lineage of Kohanim. Chalimah kohuna God forbid we should get into the practice of doubting, or of uh, adding suspicion, or of saying negative things of Kohanim. But everybody agrees you don't give challah to a kohen today, we burn it. So there's many, many nafka minas. There's many practical differences to the questionable status that koanim have. For example, pischet here says, B'chali isur If we're not sure of our Kohenim and their status, should they make a bracha when they dochen? Maybe they shouldn't make a bracha. It's a bracha, a bracha, taking Hashem's name in vain. Yisrael is going to stand up there and say, Maybe they're not really a Kohen the Minchas Yitzchak in Source 21 is a discussion of Pidjan Aben can you give the coin the five silver pieces and then must he return it is it really a coin what kind of coin should you seek out he says the Minchas Yitzchak there were people who uh, only do Pidjan Aben with and who have a Sefer Yuchsin who have something that authenticates or that defends supports their coin status certain families like the name Rappaport there are certain names which are more highly associated with being a kohen. So for Pidgin Aben, some search out not Stam kohen that the uh, Gabbai has in his Aliyah box. It says he's a kohen, but a family who can actually bring evidence for their for their kohuna status. Um, there are many other nafkaminas. Piskeh has in source 23: Can a can a our today become contaminated by a non-Jewish corpse? Shulchan Aruch writes in source twenty two nachal koin alayim. This is machlokus. We know that a Jewish corpse contaminates. This is a koin muzar, this is a koin also not allowed to become contaminated to a non-Jewish corpse. The Ravid famously says it's not a problem, but the Shulchan Aruch paskin is like So the Bishchei says maybe bismarazeh. We don't know koin bismarazeh in the muzar maltuma. Maybe koinim today they're not real koinim. Maybe we don't know if they're miyichasim. So you see that we have all of these nafkaminas. So can you use DNA in order to determine if a coin status? You may remember a number of years ago, a scientist found a genetic marker that was common among all koanim and therefore wanted to claim that you could do a DNA test to prove the yichus of a coin. So could the DNA test prove the yichas of a koan in order for us to be obligated in the status of the Giddashto to honor him at the higher level to allow him to make the bracha and all these other examples and I have some articles you could look through about this so the answer is no even if that marker proved that they come from a family whose fathers are koanim it doesn't tell you that their father didn't marry someone ineligible they may be a chol. it doesn't tell you right it doesn't tell you that nobody in their line in their lineage married a grusha married a Gioras. How do you know? So even if the marker were true that it was only among koanim, it wouldn't be enough to determine uh, the status of that koan. <laughs> Did these halachas go on to the VM? No. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. I tried. Alright, have a fantastic week. <laughs>